Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Oliver Schacht, CEO of OpGen, about antibiotic resistance and COVID-19. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. I'm joined today by Dr. Oliver Schacht, CEO of OpGen, and we're going to talk about uh, antibiotic resistance and COVID-19. How are you doing, Oliver? Doing great. Thanks, Jay. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, I guess uh, before we get started, uh, I wanted you to uh, tell me a little bit about Opgen and what you do there. Uh, Opgen is a uh, precision medicine company and molecular diagnostics. Uh, we've been active for uh, well over a decade in life-threatening infectious disease diagnostics. Uh, and not only uh, rapid diagnosis of pathogens, uh, typically bacterial uh, infections or fungal infections, but also their antimicrobial resistance. Uh, AMR or antimicrobial resistance is really what we see to be the pandemic underlying the current COVID-19 pandemic. And so that's what the focus has been to uh, deliver the information that doctors need to be able to select the right antibiotics or right combination of antibiotics for the right patient in a rational and uh, expeditious manner. And as you alluded to, you know, antibiotic resistance is a huge problem way before the, you know, COVID-19 came along. Uh, you know, how have we been doing uh, in fighting that battle, you know, pre-COVID? Uh, we, we've, we've really been, uh, you know, there's been a lot of lip service. The science has been around, frankly, for over 20 years. It's a bit like climate change. You know, it's not as, yeah. not as dramatic and not as acute as a uh, global pandemic. But we've had, to give you a sense of the scale of the, uh, the challenge here, uh, on a global level, about 700,000 people have been dying each year, every single year, of antimicrobial-resistant infection. There is, uh, you know, depending on what source you look at, probably anywhere between 15 and 30,000 people in the United States die every year of uh, an antimicrobial-resistant infection. Um, and so it is a, a challenge. It's been on the rise. Uh, over the last uh, years and, frankly, decades, as we have continued to overuse or indiscriminately use antibiotics, um, the problem has just been getting worse. And so as much as we're all hopeful that uh, come 2021 we're going to get a handle on COVID-19, the uh, antimicrobial-resistant pandemic will continue. It will be there in 21, 22, 23, hmm. and we've really got to fundamentally change the way we deal with this, and, and one of the ways certainly that we believe is key here um, is um, having rapid diagnostic information to make best use of those antibiotics that we do have, because there's also a very um, scarce pipeline uh, of, of new antibiotics coming to market. Right. And let's talk about sort of, you know, how COVID-19 treatments are, are causing an, uh, an increase even even more uh, of drug resistant super uh, super bugs, you know, how is this happening? Yeah. Well, first off, of course, you know, uh, COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a virus. Therefore, right. by definition, antibiotics do not work against viruses. Um, it is therefore quite surprising, um, understandable, maybe at a uh, at a uh, basic um, fear level. But if you look at the fact that you know recent publications, uh, the Lancet has run a, a publication or study in September this year across five different countries, suggesting that only about 7% of all COVID-19 diagnoses are actually associated with bacterial co-infections. Um, it's higher, and we've certainly at Optin uh, run a study 
uh, in Europe with the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, where uh, we've, we've seen uh, higher percentages, more in the 15% plus range in intensive care unit patients. But you know, whether it's 10, 15, or even 20% of patients, the reality is that somewhere between 70 and 80%, seven to eight out of 10 patients in hospitals with COVID-19 are getting broad spectrum antibiotics, which means that we're over-treating a large proportion of all of these patients. And then what happens is you give them broad spectrum antibiotics on the fear that a patient with a critical disease, COVID-19, might also contract a bacterial co-infection. But again, you know, if you're uh, treating five to uh, 10 times as many patients with antibiotics, uh, those patients will uh, likely see situations where uh, bacteria uh, will, will basically accumulate additional resistance. And in those hospitals, on those intensive care units, with the overusage or indiscriminate usage of broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, we're seeing a steady rise in antimicrobial resistance. And, you know, obviously we had said it, or the goal was to uh, put into place antimicrobial stewardship programs and, you know, to to reduce the uh, amount of antibiotics being used. But, you know, in this crisis situation, those those uh, standards are kind of going out the window. Am I, am I right? It's certainly, you know, overshadowed. I mean, of course, there, there's, there's some, um, you know, there's some positive effects here, if you want to call them that, in that any non-life-threatening or non-critical procedure uh, has been either canceled or at least delayed or postponed um, in, in most of our hospitals. So therefore, fewer surgeries, fewer elective surgeries also means fewer complications and fewer uh, infection rates. So, you know, we've certainly seen some of that. Um, but that said, there's other studies uh, in COVID that suggest that a significant proportion, you know, whether it's 25%, some studies would suggest as much as, as many as 50% of patients who actually die from a COVID-19 complication actually die of a bacterial co-infection that's either a pneumonia or could become a sepsis, um, a bloodstream infection. So, you know, it, it certainly uh, has sort of uh, taken, taken some of the, the focus and limelight off to the extent, and understandably so, that doctors, nurses, uh, frontline medical workers are simply overwhelmed by COVID uh, cases. Um, you know, it is, it's understandable and more of the easy fix um, to just resort to standard procedure, which is do your best judgment, give broad spectrum antibiotics, um, and not worry about each individual case because you simply don't have the time and resources. While short term, that may be a necessity, it is even medium and longer term simply not sustainable because we're, we're actively compounding the problem for ourselves and may find ourselves in a situation where none of the antibiotics that we have at our disposal may still be effective if resistance has been acquired by the bugs. Right. Because, I mean, you know, like you mentioned, you know, actually, I think today as we're speaking, um, you know, the vaccine's rolling out here in the U.S., but, you know, it's going to be a long time before, uh, you know, we see cases dramatically decrease of COVID. So, that I mean, that's a lot of time for uh, more cases of, uh, you know, antimicrobial resistance to pop up. Um, what, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but, you know, how, how can we address this problem without increasing the use of antibiotics? 
Well, again, I think the important piece here is that there are now some, um, you know, novel technologies uh, and products available in the uh, in the case of uh, respiratory infections, such as pneumonia. Um, we at Option have a product, our uh, Univero LRT, or lower respiratory tract uh, infection panel. Um, there's uh, other panels uh, available um, out in the market for for other infectious diseases um, that allow the rapid detection. And here we're talking you know, in a matter of just a few hours, as opposed to several days of detecting the pathogen, not only detecting the bug, but also detecting important information about the antimicrobial resistance pattern, certain genetic markers indicative of uh, specific types of antimicrobial resistance. And, and we're talking about products that literally take no more than two minutes hands-on time. You drop in a sample, you walk away, and a few hours later, you've got a comprehensive diagnostic result where with standard standard of care microbiology, you'd be waiting for at least two to three days, in some instances much longer, until you have the full comprehensive picture. And having this rapid diagnostic result allows you, allows the doctor to revisit their initial broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy. And you know, if, if you don't find some of these really nasty superbugs, i.e., pathogens that have already gotten resistance to multiple antibiotic classes, you can potentially start de-escalating and uh, taking away some of these, uh, you know, uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics. If, on the other hand, you find something specific that's of concern, again, you can go very narrow and very targeted and, um, you know, administer those drugs, those antibiotics that are most effective and most powerful against the specific bug. Um, now we, we've, we've seen this, we've got a collaboration ongoing at the New York State Department of Health with a platform, the uh, Option Acuitas Lighthouse, that actually allows hospitals participating to uh, run samples of bacterial isolates here, identify antimicrobial resistance patterns, and also report them with some smart bioinformatics to trace and track some of these local or regional uh, mini outbreaks. If you see the same resistant um, bug coming up in multiple locations, uh, maybe within a healthcare system where patients have been moved from one location to another or transferred, um, you know, it gives you the ability to uh, trace and track and, and then uh, kind of uh, contain these, these outbreaks, uh, much as we're doing it with COVID right now, but uh, for bacterial infections. And how widespread is this technology? Or, you know, is it still fairly new or do you have to do some convincing to get hospitals to kind of, you know, start using it? Well, in, in general, it, it, this, this is relatively new technology. So you're looking at, you know, the first FDA cleared panel for pneumonia. Uh, we got our first FDA clearance and we were first to market in the United States in uh, 2018. Uh, we got an expanded label claim at the end of 2019. So just about a year ago, and then COVID hit in uh, February, March this year. And of course we've been, you know, under the, um, uh, you know, the uh, circumstances of basically having to deal with the situation where you can't go into hospitals and labs at all. Yeah. Um, so it is new technology. It is uh, gradually being adopted. I think there is a, a general uh, understanding and appreciation by um, multiple stakeholders in hospitals, whether it's the microbiology labs, the clinicians in uh, different intensive care units, the pharmacy and, and infectious disease um, experts, as well as antibiotic stewardship committees. And, and there is a realization that it will take um, interdisciplinary collaboration at an individual hospital level across these disciplines 
uh, in order to, to you know, uh, leverage and gain the, the biggest effect here. Uh, so COVID has certainly uh, slowed things down, but nonetheless, you know, we've, we've seen hospitals uh, implement this new technology. You know, we, we uh, placed additional systems at the height of the, uh, uh, the uh, first wave of COVID in, um, you know, April, May of this year, even in New York State and New York City at a time when that uh, was the hotspot in the country. Um, so I think there is a general um, appreciation, uh, of course, as and you alluded to the vaccines, you know, we're all confident that while it may take a couple of months and maybe even a few quarters, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and there is clearly a renewed focus on testing for antimicrobial resistance uh, that we've definitely seen an increased testing numbers um, specifically coming out of the New York State project uh, month after month here uh, since this summer. So you think like maybe towards, uh, I guess, third quarter of 2021, you can probably, you know, maybe the focus will shift a little bit more to to looking at, at these kinds of issues as opposed to just, you know, being overwhelmed by COVID? I would certainly hope so. Um, I'd say the focus has already shifted again. And, and you know, we, we were really pleasantly surprised that, you know, even in the midst of an unprecedented medical crisis, with New York City hospitals completely overwhelmed, the state of New York Department of Health in April and May this year, um, you know, extended their collaboration with Option uh, for for another year, um, and so we're definitely looking forward. And we've we've seen it happen in all of the um, hospitals and labs that are part of this program across the state of New York uh, here since I'm going to say since August September, uh, and then every month since then, um, testing numbers have gone up. So hospitals are testing again for antimicrobial resistant uh, bacterial infections. Uh, we expect and we're, we're certainly hearing anecdotally that those numbers continue to go up, uh, have gone up in November again, are going up in December and January. But I'd say, you know, certainly once the medical crisis uh, uh, abates and we get a real grip around this, probably by the middle of next year, um, we, should, we should hopefully be in a position to roll out this technology much more broadly um, across the United States and different healthcare systems, uh, and frankly globally, because we're, we're obviously uh, a company that has activities in Europe, um, in Asia Pacific, and, and we've been faced with the same challenges as far as COVID goes uh, all over the world. Speaking speaking of globally, I was going to ask, you know, how widespread is uh, antibiotic resistance, you know, in other parts of the world? Is it is it sort of on par with the U.S.? Is it worse or is it better? There are places uh, there are places where it's a lot worse. Um, you know, if you go to countries that historically have had antibiotics be either over the counter or, as uh, some countries would argue, under the counter, mm -hmm. um, the problem is much more widespread. You know, if you go to if you go to Europe, um, continental Western Europe is probably very similar to the United States. The farther south and east you go, if you go into the Mediterranean, you go towards Greece, Turkey. Uh, Northern Africa and then into the Middle East, it gets a lot worse. Hmm. Uh, Japan historically has also had very widespread indiscriminate use of over-the-counter antibiotics and not surprisingly the, the challenge is, is uh, greater there. Um, you look at China, the second leading cause of death in children is from respiratory infections um, and again a, a rampant antimicrobial resistance challenge. So in many ways the US and Europe were probably average risk. There are countries, you go to, uh, you know, Scandinavia, um, historically they've had very uh, tight antimicrobial stewardship programs and have much less of a, of a problem. 
Um, but again, there are a lot of places on the planet that are a lot, a lot tougher compared to the U.S. And I guess getting back to antimicrobial stewardship, you know, how how far along were we uh, in the U.S. in terms of, you know, getting uh, hospitals and systems to adopt the antimicrobial stewardship? Were we making decent progress? I know the numbers weren't great uh, for infections, but, um, you know, obviously the message is getting out there. I mean, it's, it's you know, I think a lot of, you know, uh, major authorities are kind of, you know, emphasizing it, but, uh, you know, how, how much progress had we made before COVID? We've made a good, good amount of progress. And I mean, the fact that the term antibiotic stewardship by now is well understood and is pretty uh, ubiquitous across, you know, our healthcare system speaks for itself. Um, you look at sort of infectious disease specialists and these uh, antibiotic stewardship committees being formed, you know, across all major healthcare systems and, and hospital networks. Um, we're making a good amount of progress. Now, that said, if you look at, you know, compared again, compared to climate change, you know, we've been talking about climate change and in the debate, certainly been making a lot of progress in the last 20 years. It wasn't really until probably two, three years ago when all of a sudden, you know, almost at a global scale and global level, mankind got together and said, we really got to fundamentally need to do something. We need to understand that like climate change, Antimicrobial resistance is not something that we can tackle on our own here in the United States. It's not something that any country, um, not even any continent, can can tackle in isolation. It is a multilateral, really global phenomenon. And once COVID subsides, I would you know venture a guess we're we're going to be traveling again, traveling to Asia, traveling you know all over the world. That brings with it um, the, the the travel of uh, of superbugs uh, from one part of the world to another. And so, you know, the rhetoric is all there, the science is all there, the data is all there. Uh, we've made good progress, but there's a lot to be done. But we've proven in climate change that we can make fundamental changes. Uh, you look at, you know, parts of the world going, uh, going all in in renewables, getting out of nuclear, getting out of coal, um, looking more at, um, you know, renewables and clean gas and, and electric uh, mobility, cars, um, you know, who would have thought that Myself, you know, coming from Germany and uh, part of uh, the option organization is literally 10 minutes from Mercedes uh, <laughs> global headquarters. Uh, Mercedes will basically deploy the last fossil fuel burning engine, new car generation in 2028. I mean, that's only eight years from today. Wow. I mean, that would have been unthinkable even even three, four years ago. Yeah. So I think we, we as a as a species, um, have proven the ability to, to make that change happen. But, you know, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken and they need to be taken at a global level. Uh, the political will needs to be there and ultimately there needs to be the right uh, economic and financial incentives for healthcare systems to move in that direction. Um, tell me a little bit about AMR tracking and how that can sort of help uh, better understand how superbugs spread. Sure. So, I mean, if you, you think about it, so let's make it very specific. In our collaboration with the New York State Department of Health, um, we've uh, deployed um, instruments um, for testing bacterial isolates for antimicrobial resistance at several labs and, and healthcare systems, the Wadsworth Lab, uh, the sort of New York State Department of Health Lab, as well as uh, three central labs uh, with a total of 36 hospitals in New York City affiliated. Um, I mean, if you run a test on a bacterial isolate 
that's say it's one specific uh, acinetobacter and you find um, uh, you find specific uh, antimicrobial resistance markers, um, then you know you're able to basically compare that data at a genetic level to similar uh, results from other hospitals, um, other facilities within the same network and statewide. And if there is a um, you know sort of a surprising a concentration of these cases that may be identical or at least very similar at a genetic level, odds are you've basically got a mini outbreak. You've got um, you know, and then you look at and it, we've combined this in collaboration not just with the New York State but also with um, IDC, which is a company formerly uh, Merck owned um, Illum um, that basically offer uh, software tools that from an individual patient management record allow this uh, this tracing and tracking and you can then uh, you know really uh, uh, quickly get a grip as to where you're seeing this geographically uh, if there are individual patients that have been moved from one place to another uh, you may be able to contain it um, and having that visibility across different um, different hospitals and different um, different parts of the state um, you know, allows you to do so much faster and uh, much more transparent as otherwise, these are isolated cases, even if they're just, you know, uh, a couple of miles apart, but they're occurring in different uh, individual labs and hospitals, you would never make that connection and would never uh, figure out that it's actually one and the same bug that's spreading from one place to another. And if you think this through, obviously the idea here um, has been and continues to be to uh, roll this out across the entire state of New York, but of course, potentially also beyond just New York, um, something that uh, every state um, could uh, could benefit from, uh, you know, once it uh, once it goes into full clinical routine. And I mean, I know it's hard to say now, obviously, because of COVID. You know, have you, I, I imagine you guys have had to sort of, you know, reevaluate, you know, when when things will roll out. But um, you know, when do you see other states sort of, you know, picking up on what New York's doing? Well, we certainly know that there's a, a lot of uh, visibility, or, or at least there was. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say this second year uh, of the collaboration will wrap up in spring of 2021. Um, and on the one end, of course, uh, we're, we're having conversations with uh, New York State to extend it, but we're already um, obviously active in uh, hospital systems across the country. Mm -hmm. For our other products, um, you know, the uh, FDA cleared Univero platform. Uh, we're, you know, we're basically FDA cleared in the entire United States. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we've got um, members of our team uh, talking to hospitals every day from California to Texas to Florida um, and, and anything in between. So it's certainly we have a, uh, a, a nationwide uh, effort and together with distribution partners, we're active all across Europe, uh, the Middle East. Uh, we have partners in China. So it's certainly something that we actively look to expand. But first things first. Before we can think about expanding this and rolling this out more broadly, we need the United States FDA to come through and clear this. And you know, we've been mm -hmm. obviously uh, vocal and public about this. We had a couple of additional information request letters uh, for the Acutus AMR gene panel for isolates. Uh, we've responded to all of the agency's questions by uh, middle of October this year, and this was already extended uh, due to the pandemic from July until October. Um, and since then, we've been informed by the agency that the FDA has basically pulled all of its staff 
onto uh, COVID-19 related uh, programs and reviews, and they're pausing every other review, which of course, again, is understandable given the crisis situation, but what it means is across the industry, across all of you know, diagnostic products and platforms, we're, we're facing with additional delays uh, in the sheer regulatory review. And so, you know, one of the things we certainly hope to see here uh, sooner rather than later is the FDA to complete its review. And uh, once we get granted the FDA clearance uh, on the Acuitas AMR gene panel, we'll, we're ready to roll it out. Um, we've not missed a step or a beat uh, in the preparation for the commercial launch, but we can't do that without, you know, first getting FDA clearance right. to roll it out properly. So if patience is the key right now. It's it's a serenity prayer a day. I mean, you control certain things, but the ones you don't control is, you know, we just got to all work through that and work with that. Uh, but we are in very close and remain in very close dialogue with the FDA. And again, we can commend them for, for the Herculean effort they've been able to accomplish here uh, throughout this year. Um, it really is unprecedented times also from a regulatory side with literally hundreds and hundreds of emergency use authorizations across different modalities of diagnostic testing, antibody testing, antigen testing, PCR testing, the vaccines, et cetera. So, you know, it is something that we, we all got to appreciate. Uh, nobody could have planned for, um, and it's an all hands on deck mentality. Absolutely. Well, uh, hopefully uh, it won't be too long before you can uh, get out there and uh, you can see, uh, you know, antibiotic resistance start to uh, to diminish for a change. That's certainly the hope. And again, you know, the way to do this is to uh, test broadly and test frequently. If there's one good thing that uh, we're uh, we're hopefully going to see and uh, also maintain once the pandemic subsides is the realization by uh, not just the experts in the industry. I think few people would have disputed it, but by by uh, politicians, um, reimbursement systems, um, society at large, that rapid molecular testing for infectious disease is not only potentially life-saving, but it's something that we really need um, as a key element in our arsenal alongside drugs and vaccines, but we can't just rely on drugs. We can't uh, you know, just pray for vaccines to work. We really need rapid testing and we need it for COVID, but we also need it for antimicrobial superbugs. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Schacht, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate All right. It. And that wraps up episode 25 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.